Hello, and welcome to Popular Podagogy, a podcast brought to you by the Faculty of Education at Queen's University. We're fortunate to be joined today by Jamie Piper, who is a faculty member here, as well as one of the most interesting people in the world. Um, so, Jamie, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think the introduction makes me feel good. <laughs> yeah, well, it's always good when we get you laughing right off the start. Now, uh, in full disclosure to our audience, Jamie has been in here regaling us with tales and stories for the last 20 minutes. So I'm already on a good note. I'm already entertained. And so we're going to try and uh, capture some of that same enthusiasm in the rest of the podcast um, when we're we're talking about uh, storytelling and, and math education and a few other things in here. So uh, we're going to dive right in. So, Jamie, you've noted that your research focuses on teaching math to students who typically don't pursue a math-related degree. Um, obviously, right now, math education is a hot political topic in Ontario. So in your opinion, what would you say is the most important aspect of becoming a math educator? Hmm. I think, uh, well, actually, I need to ask a question Absolutely. back. Um, could you say math educator? And so I define math educator as one term, which is someone like myself, yeah. which is different than an educator, which could be an admin in a school board, mm -hmm. which is also different than a teacher. So when I use the term, I, this is the first time I think I've ever been interviewed on, on my podcast here, so <laughs> bear with me, everybody. Um, when I say math educator, I look at it as anyone who is teaching math to students or teaching math to other people. So it could okay. be um, a math educator in an elementary school, in a high school, as in a teacher. It could be an administrator who is helping with um, teaching math to uh, or teaching math policy to some of their sure. teachers. Um, or it could be um, someone like yourself who okay. is helping teach math in a uh, pre-service uh, education system uh, or even a continuing education. So I, I am using it as an all-encompassing term to let you decide where you want to <laughs> go with it. Okay, good, because I will narrow it down to what should the math teacher or the teacher of mathematics in elementary or secondary school be thinking of? Yeah. And the thing that I think many people get lost in is who they're talking about um people who deal with curriculum or the mathematics or teaching or learning or schools or classrooms um aren't always aware that once you it's it's sort of uh interesting in elementary school because it all happens here that the students are all mixed together but once you get into high school they start to separate themselves out into different streams but the curriculum and the people who talk about mathematics seem to only talk about a certain percentage of students, which is those that are going to university mm -hmm. for mathematics or science or math-related. Interestingly, I took some time and went to Stats Canada's website, looked through a number of their data sets, and boiled it all down. I was starting to follow some. It was just a rabbit hole. And in general, for Canada, 12% of our population goes to university for math or math-related uh, programs. Yeah. That means 88% are not going to university for anything to do with really mathematics or sciences. But everybody talks about mathematics from the perspective of that 12% going to university for mathematics. Not everybody's going to do calculus. Not everybody cares about calculus. What is the rest of our population going to be doing? Every time a teacher 
thinks about what they're going to do with their class or talks about mathematics to another person, um, reads something off the internet, finds a mathematical resource, they really got to think about who is the audience for that resource or that conversation or that other person's point of view, and who is the audience that I, as the math teacher, are thinking about. So that when I take anything that I've learned, it gets used really well for the uh, for the student that I'm thinking about. could be the student that's in essentials and going to workplace and then going to be in the uh, the workforce. That's a different way of approaching mathematics. Not a different mathematics necessarily, but a different way of approaching mathematics than if I was talking to uh, a student who was in, uh, in applied and then college courses in, univer- in a high school looking to go to college for um, uh, architectural tech, uh, business degrees, uh, business diplomas, that kind of thing. So that makes math teaching especially a lot more complicated because it's it's making it so that it's individualized for almost every student or at least finding like-minded students and, and uh, tailoring that curriculum, tailoring, tailoring whatever it is that you want to teach to that particular group. So how is it that you think that teachers should be working to try and make it so that it's it's still uh, purposeful as well as interesting for those those students? I suppose my, well, the first thought off the top of my head is that the curriculum could be better tailored or better um, articulated for different audiences, as I was talking about before. Yeah. But let's assume that we're not going to get that. Yeah. Plus, many teachers that come out of Ontario, they end up all over the world. Right. I have no idea what curriculum they're going to be using. So they need to be able to unpack it and put it back together again for the students in the class, which means... You do have to have a little bit of an assumption that the students that are in your class are relatively homogenous, that they're not going to be so widely uh, set in abilities that you do have to teach every individual student every minute. So you um, listen to your students, figure out what is most interesting, most relevant, most engaging for them. Take what they're telling you is important for them in terms of mathematics and learning and fit that into uh, the curriculum that you have to work with, whether it comes from a textbook or from a document, and make it, um, well, I think the biggest word is relevant. I think I've just gone down another rabbit hole, so you're going to have to <laughs> put me back on track. No, that's good. I, rabbit holes are welcome here on Popular Podagachi. <laughs> that's a thing. Um, I I think with what you're talking about, it, it, it really touches on you know, it's on the teacher to take whatever curriculum it is that they're teaching and finding the relevance within that curriculum to helping the students. One of the challenges, I think, though, with that is getting those teachers excited about math. And you mentioned already that only 12% of the Canadian population are going on to university for math. And I don't know what the proportion of that population is, is becoming teachers, but that's a challenge for a lot of teachers when they're coming into teachers colleges, the idea of teaching math and being excited about teaching math and finding how they can actually manipulate that curriculum. So how do you get these teacher candidates excited about being math teachers and teaching math, especially those that maybe have had math phobia in the past? Hmm. At the uh, secondary pre-service teacher level, there's very few that have a phobia for mathematics. If they have a phobia, it's not even a phobia. If they have a bit of anxiety, it's about teaching. Many think they have to know everything, and so now they're petrified that I'm going to walk into a classroom on their first practicum, and often everything's lined up for them 
<laughs> really well by their associate teacher. To get pre-service teachers excited about the way mathematics could be learned, give them the experiences that are different than they've had before. Yes, 12% of the population goes to university for mathematics or math-related courses, programs. Out of that 12%, that's the people that are sitting in, say, my pre-service class for teaching high school mathematics. Right. So they're already people who know their mathematics to a good enough degree. <laughs> that's an interesting pun. To a <laughs> good enough level uh, or ability. Um, but as, as uh, one researcher has said, we move through life and think we know things because we've observed it. It's called an apprenticeship of observation. And the researcher's Lordy is from 1975. Really great article. And it is really relevant to people going into teaching because they think that they know how to be a teacher because they've been sitting in a classroom from kindergarten to um, post-secondary. Mm -hmm. Well, you've watched things. And you've been a recipient of things, and some of those things were good or not, but as far as you know, everything was successful because you were successful. However, you were in that class of 12%. Everybody else that you're generally going to be teaching, 88% of your teaching time is going to be with everybody, all the other people in the world. So excitement and engagement for mathematics comes from appreciating that mathematics is more than just what you've learned. Right. It's not just the calculus and that you can do partial differential equations. It's that, oh my goodness, there's a way to look at something geometrically, and there's a way to look at something algebraically. You can graph it. You can have equations. You can use pattern blocks to solve equations, and that moves into the, the regular algebraic form that we know of. Those kinds of experiences allow them to start to think about mathematics a little differently. And one of the biggest things in math education today, recently, I guess, in the last five, ten years, is paying attention to mathematical thinking rather than mathematical computation. And I can tell you sort of a, a simple reason why that is. We can't know all the mathematics that there is to know today. We might have been able to in uh, Da Vinci's time, in uh, Euler's time. Um, but there's too much. So we can't be computational fluent in everything. We're going to have to be better problem solvers and have an ability to think mathematically, to know when to do something, and to have an idea as to how to pull all the tools together to be able to answer the problem. Do you think that it's challenging for uh, the teachers that are coming through these programs and are experienced math uh, educators or experienced with math and they've done these these math courses their entire life and they've obviously been successful enough to make it through a university degree and then they're going into classrooms and they're working with students who maybe don't understand the concepts that they have the entire time and you talked about that apprenticeship model and the apprenticeship worked for them but for students that it doesn't work for, how do you close that gap between them? I think one of the best approaches I've found is uh, going back to what we were talking about before in terms of how to get pre-service teachers excited about mathematics yeah. is to give them lots of experiences, like lots of experiences and very different ones. Um, for example, if we're going to study quadratics, which is a key thread in um, uh, Ontario mathematics as well as across Canada, quadratics looks like 
a parabola when you draw it. But a lot of a lot of our pre-service teachers just and our students in high school just know it as ax squared plus bx plus c equals zero. It's just a set of letters and numbers and exponents that somebody just sort of threw around and it looks like something. It's unrecognizable. It's not familiar. And our pre-service teachers just know how to factor it because they don't learn how to factor. Right. That's it because that's what you do in math. But what does all that mean? So um, there's a lot of really cool activities that take area of rectangles and then you take the numbers that come from the areas you can build and make it into a table of values and then that turns into a graph and people see that area has something to do with parabolas? No. <laughs> and then you can take wax paper and draw a line and put a point anywhere else on the piece of wax paper and start folding that wax paper so the line touches the dot and you just do it a number of times. All those little folds turn into a parabola. No, you got to be kidding. I, I get the same response from some of my pre-service teachers as I do from my grade 10 applied students when we do this activity. They go, sir. Well, my pre-service teachers don't say sir. Uh, they just call me by my name. But the students in high school say, sir, look, this looks like the shape you drew on the board. And I said, oh, no, you're kidding. <laughs> it, anything like that is just really cool stuff. You can take a ball, roll it up an incline, and measure the amount of time it goes up and comes back down, and the time plotted against the distance that the ball traveled turns into a parabola. There's all kinds of stuff that give you bounce a basketball and just use a, a motion sensor, which are really cool devices, collects the data of the ball dropping from the motion sensor to the floor and bouncing, 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 bouncing. That makes a whole bunch of, well, you can approximate them as parabola. And so with all of this, first of all, that's incredible. And I wish that I was doing that when I was in high school. Uh, but second of all, how do you introduce all of these things? Where, do, where would you recommend that teachers go to find these types of activities or think about math in this way? Because it's probably not necessarily the same as what you would see in a traditional textbook and what, what many of us have probably experienced with their math education. Well, that's a really good question. And I have three answers to it. Um, there are some incredibly amazing people in the world who think about mathematics this way all the time. You just need to find them and follow them. Twitter's great for that. Um, somebody who's not on Twitter, though, who is here at Queen's is Peter Taylor. And he thinks this way about mathematics, even though he's teaching at a uh, university. He does so much work with high school mathematics. Get involved with those people. Talk with them. Go to conferences. Go to meetings. Go to any talk. Um, find their books. Just read them. The second one, in terms of how do you think this way, I think complexity science gives me a really nice place to go with this because the idea behind it, and this comes from a book by Waldrop in, uh, I think it was 1992, and he talks about the first time that complexity science sort of emerged in, in somebody's thinking and it was, I think, in San Diego, a whole bunch of people from all different fields came together, and they were sort of left in a room. They had coffee and donuts, but they couldn't really metaphorically leave the room until they thought of something or, or until something had happened. I think it took like three or four days. <laughs> and finally, as the book talks about it, uh, people started to recognize the, geo the geologist and the geographer and the statistician and the economist and the physicist and the, like all these people, the computer scientists, 
started to find things that were common about what they knew and how they knew it. And out of this emerged this idea of complexity science. The point I'm trying to make, though, right now, it's yeah, a little bit of a way to get there. It's okay. Is that, I told you we like rabbit holes on Oh, this, this is podcast. a good one. The best way to think in as um, unique or innovative or creative ways possible, read everything. Experience everything. It doesn't matter if you really like mathematics. Read the stuff on history. Read the stuff on, on the arts. Go Take an art class. Go just read anything and everything and all of that experience. You never know when it's going to be useful. It's sort of like what I tell. That's not sort of. It is like what I tell my pre-service teachers. You're going to have a virtual library and it's just going to sit there just off your right hand, just up in the air. And every time you learn something or read something, you just take that and you put it up in your library because you don't know when you're going to need it next. But it's there's something good in there. Just hang on. And invariably, three years, five years, sometimes even 10 years later, oh my goodness, I know something that has to do with this issue that's going on with my students in my classroom. Go to your virtual library, pull out that book, that journal article, that uh, TED Talk you listen to, something, and you could get some really cool insight. How do you make that happen for yourself? I don't know, <laughs> but I had a person explain it so brilliantly. Uh, I think it's season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race, and uh, the drag queen is Kim Chi. And she is brilliant, absolutely phenomenal. I just, I just like to point out that Josh is sitting here. Our, our <laughs> producer Josh is sitting here, just nodding along. As soon oh, as yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race pulled up, he uh, he got right into the podcast. So uh, for those listening at home, just know that Josh is is very engaged right now. RuPaul was asked that question. Uh, sorry, Kim Chi was asked that question, and I think it was by RuPaul, but it doesn't really matter who. And the question was. How do you think of your uh, the, the ideas to create these kinds of um, images and and personas with your makeup and your and your um, uh, dresses and clothing? And Kim Chi said, "I don't know. It's like I'm walking down the street and I see a rock, and I pick up that rock, and that rock just seems to make me think of this and this and this and." I'm going to make this rock my makeup and my clothing. And that's my inspiration. I had listened to Kim Chi say this and went, oh, that's exactly the way I feel when something, because I had a pre-service teacher say, how do you think of some of these things to do in your class? I, I don't know. It's like I see a rock and then I just think things. <laughs> it's not really helpful. Sure. I mean... <laughs> If we're uh, if we're thinking of it as as you know sticking with our theme today, going down rabbit holes and and making sure that uh, we we have somewhere to to think off of, I, you lost me on this one. I don't know. Well, here's another example. Um, a colleague of mine uh, teaches at Oise, uh, the math education for high school math teachers. He takes photographs of things all over the world and finds the mathematics in the photograph. And then you can impose the or lay over the mathematics on top of the photograph. It becomes part of your lesson that you know, bridges look like um, semicircles or they look like parabolas or, you know, all kinds of stuff can show up in. Uh, uh, he's got a really nice one for trigonometric functions in the sine wave. And I think it had to do with streets in San Francisco. When you go with a over the head picture, you can see some of these S or curvy roads. 
they can be approximated with a with a, a trigonometric function. Really cool stuff. All comes from pictures. So you're the coordinator of the research team dedicated to improving teaching and learning in mathematics, science, and technology. So what project is your research group doing that you're most excited about right now? Well, um, first, there's a three projects that are being uh, that are ongoing by other members of the MST group that are quite phenomenal. Linda Colgan is working on Science Rendezvous, the biggest science rendezvous, science Which, fair. Which, if you thing. haven't heard of it, please look it up. It's amazing. It is. Um, Richard Reeve is working on maker spaces, and uh, especially in uh, conjunction and collaboration with some of our local school boards. Peter Chen's working on uh, cooperative education and workplace learning, so how students are learning in workplace kind of spaces. It's under the uh, acronym CEWL. Cool. I think that's sort of cool. Um, the one that I'm working on, which is taking up all my time, is uh, problem-based learning as a professional learning model for secondary school pre-service teachers. I always wondered, because I've studied teacher advocacy, mathematical discourse, uh, professional literacies and how that fits with the secondary school math teacher, problem solving, prob- I want to say obviously, but it might not be for many of my math colleagues because they they know problem solving because they do it because they're math people, but it's not necessarily the thing that you study. But for me, problem solving in mathematics has a direct link to problem solving as a math teacher because every time you stand in a classroom, there's problems that are going to happen. Some of them involve the mathematics and some of them just involve the students, but it's all in the context of the math classroom. So that makes it relevant and important. When I put the classroom practice and the experience, teacher learning, uh, their belief structures, and then how that moves into their behaviors, that says to me that Oh, plus, you can't learn everything anymore because there's too much to learn. What do you do? You create really good learners. Problem-based learning is all about learning. It's not about completing anything per se, but it's about increasing your capacity to be able to solve problems. And I'm putting that in this context, the problems of practice that show up in classrooms. And I think it's important and I really appreciate the idea that you put out there where there's there's just too much now that, that it's it's not possible to just have content and say we're going to learn this content and then you've successfully learned this content and you move to the next part. Yeah. It's it's necessary now for everybody, not just students or teachers, but for everyone to be able to adjust and learn and continue to learn and and it's that continual learning and and improving on your skills to help you continue to learn that is really the essential piece and so um, I find that to be quite an interesting part of your research. Um, and, and I think that that's an important component of that. Um, and you've talked about this before in, in other pieces that you've done where, um, it's, it's not about acquiring specific skills, but it's about acquiring specific literacies. Mm-hmm. So would you be able to expand a little bit and explain that to our audience here? Sure. Um, when I started thinking about literacies, I started by thinking about mathematical literacy, <clears throat> which is uh, the compilation of the the symbols, the signs, the words, the graphics, and so on that all comes together to make the 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 language that we use when we talk about mathematics or with another mathematics person. But I'm here at a faculty of education, and so when we talk about mathematics, we're also talking about mathematics in the classroom, secondary classroom or elementary classroom. Literacy was initially defined as 
basic literacy, reading and writing. Then it was changed or updated to functional literacy, which was the reading and writing that you needed to function as a member of society. And then it got updated. This is by UNESCO. Um, uh, around 2008, it was updated to something. The definition is huge, and it goes on like, yes, there's reading and there's writing, but there's um, problem solving and there's computing and there's um, appreciation. And I read this and my mouth dropped open thinking, oh, my goodness, this is what literacy is being defined as now? Mm -hmm. That's quite impressive. Yeah, And I think it's important that we look at it in that sense because literacy is not just reading and writing it's the ability to interact with everything around you and that includes things like what you're talking about which is problem solving it includes um, being able to uh, evaluate a particular resource that you're you're looking at it it includes so many different things and so to narrow it down to just such a small thing as reading and writing is almost doing a disservice to the idea of what skills we need in our day-to-day -day lives, in our education, and anything else that we're doing. And so I thought that was quite an interesting part of, of your research that you were doing. Plus, as a professional, as a teacher, then you're, you have many literacies to deal with. You've got digital literacies because we're dealing with technology in a classroom all the time and students bring it into our classroom. We've got assessment literacy, assessment for learning as a phrase, as a concept, is quite different than marking and grading. It's not right. the same thing. But there's a whole set of language about what that is. We've got media literacy. We've got um, health and welfare literacies. We've got learning disabilities literacies. We've got, as a professional, you have all these, I, I don't mean little as in they're not important, uh, underlying literacies that are pillars to the professional teacher discourse so that when we talk as teachers, we should be able to understand what, my fellow teacher saying to me, but to have that discourse, I need to understand all of these literacies. In that, with math teachers, is the mathematics literacy, the technology for the use of mathematics literacy, that creates quite a, a mix of um, knowledge that you need. Yeah. So professional literacy is very important. So we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Jamie Piper. Are you an occasional teacher looking to improve your job prospects? Are you an experienced teacher trying to reach the next pay scale? Are you interested in improving your overall teaching practice? Queen's Continuing Teacher Education has you covered. With easy to access online courses, you can log on to your course from anywhere you have access to the internet. Courses offered by CTE range from special education to technological education to safe and accepting schools. Queen's CTE courses work with your schedule, have supportive, expert instructors that want to help you succeed. Registration is fast and easy with no commitment to pay until the Friday before the course starts. What are you waiting for? Visit coursesforteachers.ca for more information or to sign up today. That's coursesforteachers.ca. And we're back with Jamie Piper here. Uh, so, Jamie, uh, I can tell as we've been going through this entire conversation uh, and you've been waving your hands and giving the, the, the gestures and being all excited and ready to go that uh, you may have a little bit of uh, theatrics in your teaching. So how does storytelling and performance kind of find its way into how you teach in a classroom? That's sort of an unfair question. 
because not everybody has. I have a dramatic arts minor from Waterloo. Oh, so this is practiced hand gestures. <laughs> yes. And I did all of the uh, um, Sears Drama Festival when I was in high school, um, all five years. Um, and I did stage managing for a local show uh, back home in North Bay for my for my dad, you know, that kind of stuff. So there is a bit of theater, but I think every pre-service teacher should take some kind of theater-like course, just a mini one. And it's about presence. It's about... Um, uh, diction, and it's about projection so that your voice can uh, do what you want it to do in the room for the required purpose. But I think one of the best things about uh, storytelling and having any kind of a presence in the room uh, from a theater perspective is improv. Now, there's some amazing improv artists out in the world. I'm not one of them, <laughs> but I understand the principles of improv. And it was described to me like a ping pong rally that you don't want to end. So it has to go from me to you, from you to me, back and forth and back and forth. And in improv, no matter what the other person gives you, you must take it, accept it, and work with it so that it becomes a part of it. You can't stop it, you can't resist it, and you can't deflect it because then it just then the ping pong just drops on the floor. Same thing between a teacher and a student, that the teacher is really needing to listen for what the student says, and almost anything they say, you should be able to use in some way. So they say something, you go, oh, and you hang on to it, you play around with it, and then you say, well, what if we think about it this way? And you toss it back, and they get to do the same thing, and toss it back, so it goes back and forth. That principle of improv, I think, is one of the greatest things about storytelling and classroom practice, because, I know I just brought around the storytelling, and you thought I wasn't <laughs> going to get the storytelling. Because there's a story being created between the teacher and the student. The teacher thinks they know what the story is, but that's only because they've got a curriculum document and they're hoping to get to this end goal. But you never know how you're going to get there. It's like an open-middled problem. We know where we're starting, we know where we're ending, and there are singular points, but there's a number of different paths and trajectories to get from the start point to the end point. Those are the stories. And actually, a number of my uh, literature friends, teachers, use plot and character and all those um, story writing devices to help articulate what it is that happens in a classroom between the beginning and the end um, amongst uh, teachers and students. I'd just like to point out as well that that same ping pong match that improv <laughs> is similar to what you do in a podcast where you're always just going back and forth between the two people and you have to find something between what the other person is saying and going through. So, I mean... I'm pretty much a dramatic arts minor at, at this point in time, I think. I think I'm going to just claim that from now on, even though Perfect. I uh, I probably do not have half the skills that would be needed for that. But uh, You're welcome to the club. Uh, I appreciate it. Honestly, though, um, you know, I had a few friends who, who did their teaching degrees, but also had drama as a minor, and um, they weren't in, in performance and theater, um, but the skills and the confidence and the ability to interact with anyone really came from that and so uh it was quite impressive to see them and i i picked things off of them as well just to to try and steal and and work my way through it as good teachers do um and it it really was something that i think is a, a an important skill so it's it's interesting to see how you've brought that into your classroom yes so Apparently, uh, when you were asked to teach science, you uh, were doing a science experiment. And uh, <laughs> would you tell us a little bit more about the story and maybe something about safety in a science classroom? <laughs> hmm. 
Well, apparently I need to brush up on my safety. This is from a long time ago. So the safety rules have changed from when. Naturally. Um, but this lines up with improv in the classroom because you have to deal with whatever you have in the room. Uh, <laughs> the one, though, with my eyebrows had to do with uh, the experiment where you take a paint can, you put chalk dust in it, there's a hole in the side with a straw, and you light a candle in the center of the paint can. Just tap the lid down nicely, but then you blow into the straw. The swirl of chalk and everything, and I forget all the science behind it, I'm going to have to trust my science colleagues to fill that one in, um, creates an opportunity for spontaneous combustion. And so it blows up, and the lid just sort of goes poof and lifts off. Well, my science colleague who helped me prep <laughs> forgot to tell me how much you're supposed to blow in the straw into the paint can. And I thought, well, geez, a little bit, you must have to do a lot. So I just took a huge big breath and I put my head over the can <laughs> and then blew into the straw. And this huge fireball and explosion went skaboom in the room and the paint lid went up past my face and this huge fireball went up past it, and it singed my eyebrows. Everybody in the class is dead silent. This is a grade nine science class. And they're all, Hoop. and then it, it sort of reduced and everything was, was okay. But it's, it's, it's just one of those things that happens. And then you look, oh, what'd we learn from that? <laughs> That's where the safety comes in. Because <laughs> all the students know exactly what you needed to do to make it more safe. I mean, if you're a student in that class, though, you probably are so excited that your teacher just <laughs> exploded a paint can in front of you, and you can only imagine what the rest of your science class is going to be like, where you're you're just ready to go because you you if this is what's happening at at the beginning of class, what's going to happen for the rest of class? And it probably was also a lesson in safety for a few of them as well, especially as your eyebrows started to grow back. So yes, uh, yes. So it, are there any other? We normally have a segment at the end where we talk about classroom confessions. Do you have any other funny stories that you'd like to <laughs> confess to on our podcast here? Oh yes, it goes back to improv as well. <laughs> Different grade nine class, but same. Um, year. It has to do with an explosion, has to do with improv, has to do with dealing with what you have in the room. I had a new student in class, and he had just shown up from Toronto. So he looked Trontonian-ish. He had his hat side. This is back in the time when we didn't wear our hat sideways. We didn't wear our pants down to our um, ankles and that kind of thing. But he was, he had the right look. And I thought, wow, wouldn't this be nice to help a, a student who's new to the class, and he was starting to make some friends, uh, help me with an experiment. So I asked him to come up, and he said, uh, sure. And so he came up to the front. Now, this is an experiment where there's lots of safety devices. Um, it's a, a metal canister on a, um, I forget what you call it in science class. It's the post that screws down into the desk at the front of the classroom. And then you put a ring, a clamp, ring clamp on the bottom and put the canister on top of the ring clamp. And the ring clamp on top of the canister so that when it lifts off, it doesn't actually lift off. It stays right there on the See, desk. See, that's learning from your previous <laughs> experiment. That's good. Yes. And I paid attention because my uh, tech teacher colleague said, when you're dealing with acetylene and oxygen, remember, A before O or up you go. And I thought, oh, I'm going to remember this because I have to put acetylene inside the canister and oxygen inside the canister. And then you take the tape off a little hole in the top of the canister and you put a lit match there. And you're supposed to just wait. 
because you don't put enough oxygen in a canister. And in fact, I screwed it all up because I actually put oxygen in a canister to a 50-50 mix, which is the optimal one for making it go boom. And I was not supposed to. You're supposed to let the acetylene leak out the top as oxygen fills the bottom of the canister. And then when it makes a 50-50 mix, then it goes boom. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to do this experiment. I forgot. I filled, I put both of them in there. I was not thinking of A before O before you go. Although I did put acetylene first. And then I put the oxygen. So this kid from Toronto is new kid in the class standing in front of me. I said, now you hold the match. I'm going to pull the tape off and we'll see what happens. He's like, okay. I went, yeah, okay, let's see what happens. (laughs) So I pull it off and he had the match right there. The largest explosion. It rattled all the windows. Every kid in class was visibly shaking in their seat. And this poor kid, (laughs) he was just... (laughs) I think this is probably the closest he's ever shown appear that he was close to tears because he couldn't hear anything. He had no idea what was going on. And when everything sort of calmed down, I'm yelling in the room because I couldn't even hear myself speak. I'm saying, so what do you think happened there? (laughs) Why do you think it worked? And I'm thinking, I already know it didn't work. (laughs) Asked the question anyways. And I I looked at him and said, we should try that one again. I'm still yelling. And he looks at me and goes, uh-uh. <laughs> he turns around and walks back. I said, huh, well, you're not doing improv very good. And I, <laughs> oh, that was... So if you take anything from this podcast, <laughs> um, I hope it's that uh, literacy is a very vast definition <laughs> and not to ever give Jamie Piper a match. No, uh, no. Or, or at least if you're one of his students, please don't ever take the match. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so Jamie, before we go, uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you. Um, so I'll let you do that now. Sure. Um, I have a Twitter account, um, three, one, four underscore P E R because everybody knows that three, one, four is the beginning of pi. So it's pi per. Isn't that funny? That's pretty cute, isn't it? So that's my Twitter account. Um, and I'm also starting a, uh, a web page under the name mathperceptionproject.ca. So that'll be live in about a month. And there'll be things that I think about and that I do with pre-service teachers and with grad students and with research and with classroom practice. That, it's just sort of a mixed bag of things, a bit of a blog and a bit of a repository of stuff. So similar to what we were talking about earlier, where we were saying get out there and join a community and find people that can help you. That's a good place to yes. to start there. And uh, definitely following. I, I gave Jamie a follow this afternoon so that I could start getting some of these math tips myself and <laughs> and uh hopefully stay a little entertained with it at the same time so i encourage everyone else to do that too that'll do it for another episode of popular podagogy uh you can find us on the faculty of education website here at queen's university the cfrc website here at at queen's university you can also find us on apple Podcasts, google play stitcher spotify and places that i'm not remembering uh before we go uh we have a new producer And I just want to say thank you to Josh because he makes us sound good and have a good night. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.